The San Diego-Mexico border reopens for vaccinated visitors. Today, the border finally reopens for non-essential travel, reuniting families, reopening businesses on both sides of the border. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego sets new limits on cancer-causing industrial emissions. The Port of San Diego area has traditionally always been heavily affected by industry, pollution, by its geographic location. So that's definitely a place where some of the highest cancer risks are. A report from inside the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow and new owners chart a new direction for San Diego Magazine. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. Border crossings are a step closer to normalcy, and pollution regulators are moving to clean up San Diego's air. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Monday, November 8th. Delays were expected today as the San Diego-Mexico border reopens for non-essential travel. Border wait times at mid-morning at San Ysidro show 40 minutes for passenger vehicles and about 15 minutes for pedestrians. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria cheered on the reopening this morning. We've been waiting a very long time for this day. This is a great day for Tijuana, for San Diego, for our bilateral region. Let's give it up for reopening. For the first time since March 2020, Mexican citizens can cross the border for shopping, family visits, or any number of reasons, as long as they can show proof of vaccination. But that proof may be harder to obtain than expected due to delays in official Mexican vaccine documents. Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis at San Ysidro. And Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. What's the situation at the border now? Well, it's the opposite of what we expected. You know, we expected longer border wait times, but there, there is no or relatively little wait. It's been the fastest to get through since the pandemic started, pretty much. So it's, it's pretty easy for people to come north and south. The border crossing is pretty clear. Yes, that's right. At the Petty's crossing, all the lanes are open. Uh, all the, the pedestrian booths are open. So they're processing people really, really quickly. Now, are most of the Mexican travelers being asked to provide proof of vaccination? So of the ones I've, I've talked to, and I spend the morning talking to a lot of folks who were crossing for the first time today, they didn't wait for anyone to ask them. They just went up right to the booth and showed them the certification. Uh, the ones that also had it 
were simply asked like, hey, have you been vaccinated? They said yes, and Border Patrol agents didn't ask to see the verification in, in most of those cases. Now, you've reported on the difficulties some people are having in getting an official Mexican vaccination document. What's slowing down the process? Yeah, it's been a real pain in Tijuana to get the official certification. The, the main problem is uh, information hasn't always been accurate. So somebody's address is incorrect. Somebody's email address or telephone number is incorrect. And because the Mexican government is getting so many requests to, to issue corrections, there's a backlog and it's taking them about three months to correct uh, those mistakes. But do people really need that official government document? Well, I think what we're seeing today at the border is that a lot of people won't need them. But the, the tricky situation is that even though you probably won't be asked to show it, you might. And there's no way for you to know when you will be asked and when you won't be asked. So, so you kind of have to have it ready to go. But more often than not, no, you won't be required to show it. Now, even with those problems and the potential delays, maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday at the border, this is a day many people have been waiting for. What have you been hearing about that? Well, you heard it from the press conference, right, from that clip. Uh, People are excited. It wasn't just Todd Gloria here this morning. It was the mayor of Tijuana, the governor of Baja California, uh, representatives from Chula Vista, Imperial Beach, the county. Everyone was just really, really excited to have it finally reopened because of the economic impact it's had in San Ysidro specifically. Now, the, the mood is a little bit different in the shops where shop owners aren't really seeing the bump that they expected right away. You know, today, business has been more or less the same, uh, and that's been disappointing. But the holidays are approaching, and those businesses must be looking forward to a good season. Oh, definitely. Here in San Ysidro, the businesses, the majority of them make all of their net profit during this upcoming holiday season. So even though today wasn't what they expected, they're still very, very happy and and very optimistic about the next couple of months. And has the border closure affected the entire San Diego economy? Yes, yeah, it really has. Uh, Particularly when you look at the service industry and the tourism industry. They've they've both taken really, really massive hits from cross-border travelers who really just come for the weekend to spend it at at SeaWorld. People in Tijuana have their favorite restaurants that they go to in in Coronado or up in Del Mar. Uh, A lot like the steakhouses downtown, I've told, like they just want to go back to the places they've always been to. So even though it's mostly felt or most heavily felt in San Ysidro, really the entire county is experiencing the, the impact. And on a more personal level, there are families that haven't been able to see each other for the last 20 months. What are you hearing about that personal aspect of this reopening? Well, I talked to, to a, a woman who hadn't seen her sisters in 20 months, right? I mean, they talked on the phone, they do FaceTime, but there's no substitute for hugging your sister, right? Sharing a meal or a cup of coffee with them. Uh, That is the impact that is really more difficult to quantify, right? You can put a dollar figure on the lost sales uh, revenues, but you can't really quantify not seeing a relative for 20 months. 
Well, we'll have to keep our fingers crossed that that good flow, traffic flow at the border keeps up as this continues for over the next couple of days. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you, Maureen. For years, a number of San Diego-based industries have been emitting carcinogenic toxins at a rate far higher than elsewhere in California. That's supposed to change after the San Diego Air Pollution Control District voted unanimously last week to force industries to drastically cut their pollution. The new regulation would see companies reduce their emissions so that cancer risks are one-tenth of their current legal limit. Joining me now with more is Mackenzie Elmer, who covers environmental issues for Voice of San Diego. Mackenzie, welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. What are the local industries that are actually emitting these kinds of cancerous toxins? The story really focused on one large polluter. That's the um, NASCO or the shipbuilding industry over at the port of San Diego. But there's a lot of different types of industries that can potentially emit these cancer-causing toxins, like multiple landfills have uh, high rates or high risks of cancer in San Diego. There's concrete industries that produce a lot of like dust particulates and other kinds of toxins, um, metalworking, plating industries. And actually, in our story, we have a map. We posted all of the locations so you can kind of look up where you live in context to where some of these industries are. And what exactly will these polluting industries have to change when these regulations take effect? Prior to the vote, the industries, all they had to do was notify the public about every three to four years when they would submit a kind of inventory of all of their cancer-causing pollutants that they do emit to the district. So now they're going to have to notify the public in shorter time frames. Also, maybe have to meet with the public as well in kind of a community meeting setting that remains to be seen how that's all going to work out. But they'll also have to start actually in changing their practices or updating their technologies uh, so that they're emitting less of these pollutants and have to kind of bring down their threshold of cancer risks in San Diego. And what's been the response from these industrial polluters themselves? I have to imagine they're not too thrilled about this change. Right. It is a it is a cost to industries. Um, I tried to get in contact with some of them to try to get more context about just how costly updating their technologies to the best available. is. It's kind of the phrase in, in the policy speak, the best available technologies. But initially, before the vote, when these industries were submitting letters in response to the rule change, NASCO was quite against it. They were worried about how quickly they would have to change their technologies and that kind of basically they wanted this process to slow down and they wanted the district to study the cost to industries in the area. But they sort of changed their tune during the actual public meeting. They said that they accepted the rule uh, despite it being kind of a, a higher cost to them. But what they were more concerned about during the actual vote was something that the environmental advocates were actually asking for. They wanted tighter limits on the amount of extensions these industries could get to actually update their technologies. So the rule that they passed allows for industries to make changes within five years, but they can get additional three-year extensions. And as far as I read the rule, there's no limit to those three-year extensions. So the industries were just hoping that the district would allow for industries to kind of have more time in the future to update their technologies. And, and the advocates were really hoping for for like a 10-year hard limit, but the district actually kept it kind of looser to allow for industries to make their changes. 
If toxic pollution is higher in San Diego County, does that also mean that we have higher cancer rates? In other words, have the looser regulations also led to worse health outcomes? That's a really great question and one that I have yet to really explore. It's quite hard if you talk to a lot of public health experts to be able to link cancer to a very specific source or a pollutant or even location. But conceivably and statistically speaking, because we've had this sort of higher allowable cancer risk for many decades, conceivably there are higher cancer rates perhaps due to that. It's just it's very hard to link the two things. Let's talk about this regulatory agency, the San Diego Air Pollution Control District. It's not something I think most people are very familiar with. There have been some pretty substantial changes to the structure of this agency. What were those changes? And tell us how they laid the groundwork for this most recent crackdown on emissions. The Air Pollution Control District is basically a regional body that's supposed to regulate local emission sources. They have to use, you know, like the basic state standards from the California Air Resources Board, and then they can kind of decide how strict they want to be with their local industries, which is part of the reason why we saw San Diego had permitted such a high level of cancer risk for such a long time, whereas other areas of California, like the South Coast Air District, which includes the Port of Long Beach, they actually had stricter standards than San Diego, and they have a lot of industry there, obviously, so that was interesting. But the board itself for the longest time, was basically ruled and governed by the County Board of Supervisors. They were sort of like the shoe-in board and would make decisions. And I spoke with current Supervisor Nathan Fletcher about this because he was one of few Democrats on the County Board of Supervisors when they were still in control of this board. And he said he tried to propose stricter rules on these cancer-causing toxins, but he himself told me, I tried to propose this rule and nobody knew how to even put anything on the agenda. In effect, the Air Pollution Control District just didn't really do much governing, I guess, because the county board of supervisors was in charge. And it just depends on how ambitious your your county board is on air pollution, whether those changes are going to take place. And so the makeup of the board changed after um, Mayor Todd Gloria, when he was formerly in the assembly, he pushed Bill AB 617, and it forced the Air Pollution Control District to expand its board beyond just the County Board of Supervisors. And now they have, I think it's 11 members, uh, which includes city council members from La Mesa, San Diego, and also members of the public who have you know, air pollution interests or public health expertise, some advocacy members as well. So that, I think we saw a real change because there was really no discussion. It was pretty obvious that the current board was ready to pass this rule, despite the pushback from industries. Mackenzie, the presence of these pollutants is not evenly distributed across the county. Which neighborhoods have historically seen the worst kind of or the worst levels of this pollution? From what I could tell by the mapping of the industries that I had from the district, the Port of San Diego area has traditionally always been one that's heavily affected by industry pollution just by its geographic location next to the port. So that's definitely a place where some of the highest cancer risks are. So if you look at the map, you can see also that there's a lot of cancer hotspots on the periphery of the city. So like where the landfills are, and that's kind of common for zoning, you know, you push industry out sort of towards the outskirts away from residences. But it is surprising. There are some clusters of cancer risk from these industries scattered throughout the city. So it's not just your your air is cleaner if you don't live near the port or you don't live near the outskirts. There are various polluting industries throughout the region. 
All right. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego environment reporter Mackenzie Elmer. And Mackenzie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for talking with me. Hey, hey, hey. This is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Heineman is away today. Access to banking is an important facet of a community's health. And as KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim finds, in Imperial County, a shortage of bank branches and rising temperatures can be a dangerous mix. Noon is still hours away on a Tuesday in early August, but the streets of El Centro, California are so hot, it feels like the soles of your shoes could melt into the asphalt. Suffering in this heat are lines of people, many elderly, outside of Bank of America and Wells Fargo's branches. Beads of sweat form on the faces of customers as they wait patiently to use the ATM or talk to a teller. Juan Sequeria is an agricultural worker from Holtville, California. He waited an hour just to use the Bank of America ATM during his break. He says during the high heat season, the wait for an ATM is unbearable because there's no shade. Maria Lopez is retired and lives here in El Centro. She says she nearly fainted once when waiting at the bank on a hot day. She was rushed indoors where it was cooler. But to this day, she can't be out in the heat for long without getting sick. The local Wells Fargo branches in El Centro and Calexico have devised systems so that people have access to shade and someone is always there directing the flow of people. So how did it come to this? El Centro is in Imperial County, situated on the edge of the Anza Borrego Desert State Park. But the region is at risk of becoming another type of desert, a banking desert. There are only 12 brick-and-mortar FDIC-insured banks for Imperial County's over 180,000 predominantly Latino and low-income residents, down from 19 as recently as 2013. I think we have seen a fair amount of branch consolidation um, in the past several years. That's Beth Mills, a spokesperson for the Western Bankers Association. She says consumer habits are driving the change, making branches less important. There's been a lot less people going into branches now with everyone doing mobile banking, not everyone, but a huge majority. But Jaisal Mendoza, the director of the Imperial Valley Small Businesses Development Center, says not everyone is online savvy and the lack of bank branches can be challenging for the small business owner she works with. The culture here is very different. Um, I can honestly say most business owners want to sit down um, and sit in front of a person and know who they're conducting business with. Maria Lopez, who nearly fainted while waiting in line that one time, 
No sé hacer eso, mi. Tells me she doesn't know how to bank online and isn't interested. Me gustaría que hubiera más bancos para que la gente no hiciera mucha línea. She wishes there were more banks in the area so people wouldn't have to wait so long. Juan Lopez, a spokesperson for Wells Fargo who grew up in Imperial County, is no stranger to the lines. His own mom likes to go in and talk with the teller. I ask him if he thinks more branches would help alleviate the lines. Probably not the best person to answer that, but I would say I would say a very strong maybe. He does say, however, that when the branches started to close in Calexico a few years ago, the lines got longer. As those shutter and leave the, the community, the lines just get progressively worse because you know, we're the only bank there in Calexico, especially. Less than a mile from the Mexico border and littered with cash checking places, Calexico only has the single Wells Fargo branch, where lines can take up to three hours. California State Senator Ben Hueso represents Imperial County. He told KBBS in a statement that banking access is, quote, a huge problem in the Valley. Hueso has co-authored two recent bills that have paved the way for public banking options, which he says are needed because, quote, this issue is not going away. For now, though, people are still lining up at Imperial's few bank branches, no matter what the thermometer reads. Christina Kim, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, Maureen. In your report, you say Imperial County only has one bank for approximately every 15,000 residents. Can you contrast those numbers with the kind of access to banks we have here in San Diego? Sure. So it's hard to compare Imperial County with San Diego County in some respects, just because of the sheer size differences, as well as different demographics. But looking purely at the numbers, San Diego County has a population of about 3.3 million people, people. And there's 527 FDIC insured banks. So that breaks down to approximately one bank for a little over 6,000 people. It's obviously still like a big disparity when you hear it, but I think it's interesting that, and I wanna look at more is where branches clustered. So breaking it down a little more granular, El Centro, which is an Imperial County has eight brick and mortar branches for its population of over 4,000 people. Meanwhile, Solana Beach in North County in Diego has a much smaller population of 13,000, but they also have eight banks. Can you tell us more about how bank branches in El Centro and Calexico, how do they try to provide shade and shelter to people waiting on long lines? Yeah, so most bank branches in Imperial know that the first week of the month when disability checks, social security and paychecks are coming in is going to be hectic. So when I was down there, what I saw was Wells Fargo had really pitched up tents. In one instance, in El Centro, they had blocked off part of the shaded parking lot. So cars couldn't park there in order for people to be able to line up. And what I really saw was like a lot of people creating a system to try and process people as quickly as possible. You know, there's somebody on a walkie talkie inside of the bank talking to someone outside who's just really trying to get people moving quickly and also giving priority to the elderly and those who really just are suffering in the heat or just can't stand in line for very long. And about how long are those waits? Right, so these waits really depend on the day, of course, but we've heard cases in which the the wait can take up to three hours. And that's especially in Calexico where there's only one single brick and mortar bank. Now, in listening to your report, it occurred to me, would offering classes to people on how to access online banking, would that help the situation? 
That's an interesting question, Maureen. So what I heard from a lot of the people that I spoke to in banks, including JSL Mendoza, who now runs the small business development center, but used to work at a bank, is that banks really are the ones, bank branches are really the ones that are doing that kind of education. So much of it is, hey, this is how you use an ATM. This is how you might use mobile banking. And we do know, according to the Wells Fargo spokesperson, Juan Lopez, that they have seen the use of mobile banking go up. But it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation, Maureen, right? If these branches are the ones that are providing this kind of financial literacy, as well as access to online banking help, then there, there kind of needs to be more, right? In order for that education or that kind of you know, help with access to be there. And I think in such situations, it's important not necessarily to put the onus on the clientele. So the question is less, why can't people just do online banking? And more, why are institutions not meeting people where they're at? And there's only one bank in Calexico now? That's right. In Calexico, there's only one single brick and mortar branch, which is Wells Fargo. And that's where I was saying the lines can get extra long as a result. That's where we're seeing those kind of three-hour wait times at times. Now, Wells Fargo has come under a great deal of criticism for the amount of fees it charges. It's recently launched a program aimed at changing that, but it's not been known as a great bank for low-income people. So I'm wondering, could check cashing stores be a workable option for some residents? Right. So to your point, Wells Fargo has been scrutinized for fees and also just not being as present in low-income communities where Black and Latino people live. In May of this year, Wells Fargo launched a 10-year plan or initiative to increase their presence in underserved communities and really tackle the issue of financial exclusion and really reach out to those that aren't banked at all. So we're going to have to see where that program really goes. But to your question about check cashing options, the fact is that in Calexico and El Centro, I did see several check cashing places as well as payday loan centers. And people, especially those that are unbanked or underbanked, which is when someone has a bank but also uses alternative financial products like check cashing places, they're more prone to use it, but there are really risks and costs associated to check cashing places. So check cashing places give you immediate cash for your check, but it's at a price. They charge transactions fees, which can be very high and over time can really add up if that's the sole way a person is you know, banking or doing any kind of financial tra- transactions. Moreover, funds there are not insured, and there's a higher risk that clients using check cashing places will be offered a payday loan, which we know have extremely high interest rates and can further push people into a cycle of debt. So yes, it's workable, but I think a lot of folks wouldn't say it's, a, it's advisable. Now, you say State Senator Ben Hueso has introduced bills to create public banking options. Tell us, what would they be? When I asked uh, State Senator Ben Wesa to comment on this issue, the first thing he told me is that it's very much a huge problem, right? Banking access is a huge problem in the Valley. And then he also noted that he's heard two bills in the last few years that have paved the way for public banking, which I think is his way of signaling that this is a possible solution. So the first was just signed into law this year, and it's going to create a a feasibility study for the so-called Cal counts, which provide low-income families with zero interest and zero fee accounts with no minimums that will be regulated by the state but managed through financial institutions. And the goal of this was really, hey, let's do a study to see how we can get those who are unbanked or underbanked, you know, to get banked so that they're not relying on predatory products. And the second is the now 2019 law that created a legal framework and pathway for up to 10 public bank charters to be piloted. 
So far, Los Angeles and San Francisco are the furthest ahead, but these would create municipal owned banks, which again, they're not, these bills and public banking are not specific to Imperial Valley, but again, you know, his inclusion of public banking seems to be signaling that State Senator Weso thinks that in order to address banking issues in the Valley, there's going to have to be some creative solutions down the line, perhaps such as public banking. I've been speaking with KPBS race and equity reporter, Christina Kim. Christina, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. The UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, is entering its second week. There were protests outside the venue at the end of last week, including a passionate speech by climate activist Greta Thunberg, who called COP26 a failure. To find out more about what goes on inside the conference, the California Report called up Chris Field, director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, who's been attending for years. He starts by describing the physical setup of the conference. There's sort of a central core where negotiators from all the countries are are working on text, fine-tuning commitments through the nationally determined contributions. They're talking about progress on thorny issues like loss and damage, whether there should be compensation for poor countries. And these negotiators, around a thousand people total, are mostly pretty cut off from the from the outer circles. And the negotiating teams are mid to high level representatives of pretty much all the world's governments with drop-in visits from heads of state and, and ministers of environment. There's a second tier of official observer organizations, universities, big NGOs, corporations who are there to to help provide information, to help make the case for the solutions that they're most interested in. And then there's an outer layer that in UN speak is called the green zone. And the green zone is open to the public and it has everyone represented from oil and gas interests to youth activist groups and really is where the public expressions of interest about climate change come into focus. What is the significance of these different circles? The whole idea of the Paris Agreement is that there's supposed to be mutual stimulating of ambitions, that as individual countries realize that they can commit more, they do that, encouraging other countries to step up, encouraging private companies to step up, encouraging activist groups to step up. And at the same time, pressure from NGOs and activist groups can stimulate the countries to push more, can stimulate companies to increase their commitments. And the whole idea of the Paris Agreement is to generate what you might think of as a virtuous circle, where every time an increase in ambition from one actor occurs, it tends to raise the ambition among the others and also to increase the pressure on those who are perceived as laggards. How do you expect this conference to influence what happens here in California? Well, California really has an incredibly important position on the global stage as a real leader in both commitment to action on climate change and willingness to experiment with a a wide range of approaches to driving emissions down. California really is important as a lighthouse for what can be done. 
examples of, of what works. Examples of what don't doesn't work as are useful too. California's continued high-profile leadership makes a real difference in terms of the of the willingness of, of other parts of the U.S. and other places in the world to be involved. That was Chris Field, director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, speaking with the California Report's Laura Clivens. As we continue coverage about the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, it's important to underscore California's role in it and how the state will be affected by future climate change. To bring the topic home, make it more tangible, and take you somewhere that's directly threatened by our planet's changing climate and things like sea level rise, the California Report explored a regional track of transportation that could stand to be affected. So very early one recent morning, California Report host Saul Gonzalez caught a train. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard. This is your cafe car attendant. The cafe is located... So I've come aboard Amtrak's Pacific Surfliner, which connects downtown Los Angeles and downtown San Diego. It's about a three-hour trip, and it can be incredibly scenic, particularly as the train runs along the coastline. It's also a great way to see how climate change threatens the coast and all the things that human beings have built along the coastline over the past several decades. That built environment threatened by rising seas includes oceanfront homes, roads, piers, power plants, and this very train I'm riding on. In September, both Amtrak and a commuter rail line had to suspend service on part of this route for a couple of weeks. Emergency repairs were needed because beach erosion, partly attributed to climate change, threatened the tracks. You know, the coastline is a super dynamic place, naturally. That's Rick Bell, a professor of geological sciences at Cal State Long Beach. He says even in normal times, California's coast can be a tricky place to build things and keep them safe. The coastline itself is actually a very mobile, dynamic feature. It's, you know, it's where everything comes together, the the ocean, the atmosphere, the land, the rivers. It's constantly changing. And climate change, says Bell, really supercharges those changes, making storms stronger, tides higher, and coastal erosion of beaches and cliffs worse. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, we're now arriving at San Juan Capistrano Station, San Juan Capistrano. And you can really see how rising seas and eroding coasts could threaten this train route and everything around it as we travel through South Orange County and into North San Diego County. The train track comes really close to the Pacific Ocean here. You feel like you can almost touch the water. It's a spectacular view, but it also shows how vulnerable this train and nearby homes and infrastructure are to climate change. Now, get off the train and walk the beaches in a town like San Clemente or Oceanside, and you can see how people have responded so far to the threat. Sea walls have been built in front of many homes, and giant boulders have been placed between the ocean and the train tracks in a lot of places. But in the long term, geologist Rick Bell says such coastal armoring actually makes erosion worse by starving the beach of new sources of sand. It increases the energy on the beach, causes more erosion, drops the sand. And so there really is no beach left 
Looking ahead, Bell says Californians will likely face the daunting and expensive challenge of moving some homes and critical infrastructure, including parts of this train route away from the coast. That's called planned retreat. Bell also says we have to stop thinking about sea level rise as something that's happening so slowly we just don't have to worry about it yet. He says big changes to our coast could come dramatically fast. Beach erosion, cliff retreat is not a gradual process. It's episodic. So that when someone says, oh, that's long in the future, far in the future, it may be or it may not be. And when it happens, it's going to be some catastrophic events, some big events that will cause a lot of damage all at once. As I watched the California coastline pass by from the comfort of my train seat, remembering Bell's comments made the million dollar views of the water on a gorgeous morning a lot more unsettling. That was Saul Gonzalez for the California Report. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego Magazine has been in business for more than 70 years, and now it finds itself under surprising new ownership. Longtime food writer for the magazine Troy Johnson and his wife Claire recently introduced themselves as the new majority owners, and they have big ambitions for the magazine's future. Troy Johnson joins us now to talk about why it was so important for them to take on this new venture. Troy Johnson, welcome to KPBS. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. You wrote an article introducing yourself and your wife as the new owners of San Diego Magazine, and you say the idea came to you during the pandemic. Tell us about that. You know, I split my life between doing Food Network uh, appearances and doing a show for Big Ten Campus Eats and then San Diego Magazine. And when the pandemic hit, all of my email exploded with the local restaurant community who I've covered for the last 11, 12 years. And every single email said the same thing. Help. Help me. I need help now. I, I was terrified. I was paralyzed a little bit because I didn't, I didn't have the bandwidth to handle handle it all. And so what I did is I basically ditched my traditional form of journalism. I opened up my Instagram, I, and we just sat down and had Instagram lives, three sometimes five restaurateurs or local chefs or ranchers or farmers or food makers would come on, tell their story, and we'd let people know not only their story but how they could help them during the pandemic. And sitting there. Every single night, in and out, was the most impactful moment of my career as a journalist. And because I've been split between national world and my local community, it just crystallized it for me. Both Claire and I said, we need to invest in our local city. We need to invest in these people right here. We need to tell their stories. And we need to you know, really become part of the media fabric that is doing quality work and innovative work in the media space so that as San Diego emerges and it doesn't lose sight of these stories and it's just more inclusive. We're living in a time when the local news and media landscape is really in a precarious position. Newspapers and magazines are folding all across the country and some are being bought up by hedge funds or private equity firms that are cutting jobs in pursuit of profits. What makes you think that you can buck this trend? You know, for the first thing is that 
if San Diego Magazine was just a magazine still at this day and age, I don't think I would have had the guts to have done it. But they evolved for the last five or six years and now are now a 360 media company. They have podcasts and social media and short form videos and live events and e-newsletters that they've developed. And they've developed all these modern tentacles into the community in ways of storytelling that if that infrastructure wasn't there, I don't know. But the other thing I need to say about, you know, international media coming into local markets is that they don't understand the landscape. A lot of these, you know, have no sense of what a region wants or needs. They haven't lived here. They haven't told the stories. They haven't, you know, had trouble finding, you know, parking in a certain area or had trouble accessing a certain government um, service. You know, they don't understand the local uh, topography. And I think the fact that I'm a San Diego native born and raised, and I've been telling stories here for 25 years, you know, is it gives me an insight to what the local um, community responds to, what they, what they, what they, the stories that they like, the stories that are important to them. And I think that does give me a nimbleness and an advantage over somebody that has, you know, a billion dollars and lives in New York City or Chicago or, you know, somewhere unnamed that isn't San Diego. San Diego Magazine's first issue was all the way back in 1948. Now, obviously, the media has changed a lot since then. Why was it important for you to purchase a magazine now as opposed to just starting a new media company, for example? Yes, I love magazines. When I graduated from college, my mom said, well, you finally did it. It only took you six years. You know, what do you want as a gift? And I said, you know what I want? I want 10 uh, subscriptions to my favorite magazines. You know, the New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, Smithsonian, Surfer Magazine, Rolling Stone, all of these. Magazines are not dead. The thing that is dead is the 4,000 page national magazines because they were the only thing in town. There is a very profitable um, way to do a regional publication that caters to the local market. Just because we're not making $17 million a year uh, as Vogue doesn't mean that you can't make a profitable business that employs creatives in San Diego. I love the low tech of, of magazines. I love that nothing bloops or bleeps or you know notifies me that I have to pick something up or call somebody or anything else. I love that it focuses your attention just like a book. It, you know, it's it, I stare at a screen every single day. And we do a lot of work on screens. San Diego Magazine is a 360-degree media company. We have podcasts and social media and online and short-form video and live events. But the magazine is one element of what we do that is low-tech. And I love that low tech. I love how art explodes. I love the writing of Gay Teles, you know, writing about Frank Sinatra has a cold in Vanity Fair in 1960s or 70s or whatever year that was. I love Joan Didion's writing in magazines and David Foster Wallace's magazine writing. You can't, there's nothing you can recreate in the digital space that gives you that same tactile, artistic immersion that a magazine does. You've been a part of San Diego Magazine as a writer, of course, for many years. How do you see your role changing within the magazine, and will you continue to write for the publication? I will continue to write for the publication. I'm going to continue to create across all platforms that San Diego Magazine has. A lot of that, obviously, with my work on Food Network and and TV, I'm going to start doing a lot more video for us. And we're going to start doing real, you know, uh, meaningful video vignettes that are both a guide to the city and an exploration of the issues surrounding the city. Uh, you know, I'm going to write about food, but th then I'm also going to hire and curate a lot of new voices. So, but I am definitely still gonna be um, writing about food 
you know, it's just going to take me a couple months to get into the nuts and bolts of the business and sign some insurance. But uh, I have a lot of work to do just to make sure that the business is solid before I get back to really creating. A lot of work, I'm sure. You wrote that the magazine will essentially be about people. Can you expand on that for us? You know what it is? I mean, I, I, thinking further about that, it's, it's about that extraordinary. You know, I, it, when during going through this process, I was reading every single piece of information that came out about San Diego and all on KPBS, in the UT, in everything. And, you know, certain vignettes struck me. And one of them, and I keep on referring to this man and this poor man, Abel, if you're out there, one day I'm going to say hello to you. I feel like I've been overusing him. There's a story on storm drains. And the person who runs our storm drains in San Diego, which is really important, if our storm drains get overwhelmed, the entire you know water system gets polluted and there's major problems. People get sick. The person that was running it said, our system right now depends on Abel. Abel shows up to work every day. If Abel doesn't show up, that storm drain does not get cleaned. That filter does not get cleaned and our waters are in danger. And I thought, oh my God, it was just a throwaway sentence. I'm like, that's the story. That's a man. I want to create this amazing photo of, and I want to put him on the same page as a tech CEO as a great architect who designed Alicia Keys' house, you know, as somebody who's working at UCSD on medical research, on, you know, there's extraordinary in every single socioeconomic strata, every culture, you know, I I just want to make, find those people and highlight their stories, you know? So it's funny because media, I feel like some media is too high-end and I feel like some media is too against high-end. I'm not against either one of those things. I'm, if you are insanely successful and you make millions of dollars a year, I want to talk to you and I want to hear that story and get the excellence and the extraordinary that you have in terms of ideas. If you make $10 a year, you know, I, I want to hear that idea that you're working on. I want to hear your life and your struggles and your ideas. You know, it, it just needs to be a more representative storytelling of our city on all ends. When might readers start noticing changes to San Diego Magazine under your leadership and what might those changes be? Oh, give me a little time. Please bear with me. I This week, I'm doing one-on-ones with staff because when you take over something like this, the first thing you can do is not make a change, but listen. So I'm, I'm going to listen to everybody who's worked there. There are 24 amazingly creative people who have been working their butts off to keep this magazine alive and thriving during the pandemic. And what I need to do is I need to sit down with them and say, just dump it on me. Tell me exactly what you love about this, what you don't love about this, what you want to see for this, what your ideas are. So it's going to take me um, through the winter time to really get the architecture, you know, fine-tuned, work with our team to make sure that the systems are in place so that we can start launching new ideas. I would say that, you know, for as for what we're going to do, the new San Diego magazine, and there will be a new San Diego magazine. It is going to be a new modern thing. You know, I would say look to us at about March 2022. That's when you really give have given us a couple months to get in there and make the changes that we need to make and then make the innovations that we need to make. I've been speaking with Troy Johnson, who with his wife, Claire, is the new majority owner of the San Diego magazine. Troy, thank you for joining us. And I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you so much, you guys.